Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out in what has been reported throughout the day of the media to be a massive snowball. <laughs> I'm Craig Calhoun. I'm the director of the LSE, and it's my pleasure to get to introduce this evening's public lecture. I get to introduce it because it's hosted by the Gender Institute with support from LSE Stickard, and people thought that I would be able to tell you what LSE Stickard stood for, but I actually can't. It's something economic. Um, Suntory. International Center for Economic and Related Disciplines. All right. We are the related disciplines. (laughs) And because we are the related disciplines, they have generously provided us with support uh, to bring Beth Covenelli tonight. The Gender Institute uh, was established in 1993 to address the major intellectual challenges posed by contemporary changes in gender relations. This remains the central aim of the Institute today, and it's the largest research and teaching unit of its kind in Europe. It's interested in mapping and intervening in the gender nature of social processes. That might happen tonight, I don't know. <laughs> um, there might be an intervention. The Gender Institute works in an integrated, interdisciplinary, and global approach on this, and it is the only gender center globally that combines theory and practice with such an interdisciplinary and transnational scope. And I tell you all this about it partly because 2013 is the Gender Institute's 20th anniversary year. Now, the other reason it's a great pleasure to be here and opening this speech tonight is that tonight's speaker is Professor Elizabeth Povinelli whom I have never called Professor Elizabeth Povinelli before. Sounds weird. Beth is Professor of Anthropology and Gender Studies at Columbia University, where she's directed the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, co-directed the Center for the Study of Law and Culture, and is currently chair of the Department of Anthropology. Her research seeks to produce a critical theory of late liberalism. She's the author of four books, Labor's Lot, The Cunning of Recognition, the Empire of Love, and Economies of Abandonment. The Cunning of Recognition received a book forum Best Book of the Year prize. She made a film called Caribbean Low Tide Turning with Lisa Johnson, which was selected for the Berlinale Shorts Competition in 2012. I could tell you lots of other really cool things about Beth and other things that she's done. Uh, what I'd like to tell you, rather than that, is that I admire her, I find her work enormously interesting, and I look forward to listening to her talk, so I'm going to shut up so that we can get on with listening to her talk entitled Life and Politics, Potentiation and Extinguishment. And after the speech, there will be time for questions and answers, and then a reception in the Gender Institute, to which you are all invited. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. It's a real pleasure, and uh, Craig and I have known each other for a while, so I was um, I was very delighted to be invited by the Gender Institute, and then a little um, surprise, and I thought I would tell him he must not have enough work to do to have Craig come and introduce um, the talk. I also like when it's when what I do is called a speech. I always feel like a politician, and unfortunately, I'm not as exciting as a politician at times. Um, so I will just say this is a talk, that I am going to give you a talk today. 
and we'll see where it goes. Um, so I'm just going to begin. And again, it's also extraordinary. How many thir- How many years now? Twenty. Twenty. Wow. It's amazing, actually. And, well, we can come back to that. Twenty years, what has happened. And hopefully we'll begin to discuss some of that, actually, today. So let me start. It's now commonplace to note a generational shift from Althusser to Foucault that marked a conceptual shift from a negative repressive analytics of liberal power to a positive, productive analytics of liberal power. For some scholars, this generational shift is nowhere more clearly marked than in Foucault's first volume of the history of sexuality. You all know that Foucault begins his study, the history of sexuality, with the lulling images of the repressive hypothesis. He writes, for a long time, the story goes, repression operated as a sentence to disappear, but also as an injunction to silence, an affirmation of non-existence, and by implication, an admission that there was nothing to say about such things, nothing to see, nothing to know, unquote. But he soothes his reader in the beginning, only to make the, his, the inverse argument more dramatic. Quote, the question I would like to pose, however, is not why are we repressed, but rather why do we say with so much passion and so much resentment that we are repressed? And not merely why we think we are sexually oppressed, overturning for Foucault, overturning common sense understandings of the history of sexuality has direct ramifications on common sense (laughs) understandings of liberal power. And of course he talked about power, but I'm going to talk about liberal power. Indeed, the reason that Foucault was studying sexuality was for him to understand the specificities of a formation of power in which life was currently organized, or currently organized then. The question for Foucault was how to think power outside the domineering image of the repressive state, what we now know as sovereign power, and thus shift our understanding to another form of power, one that just flows off our lips now, biopower. In short, the answer demanded, the answer to why we think we are repressed, demanded a shift in the analytics of power from the, quote, old power of death that symbolized sovereign power to a new power over, quote, the administration of bodies and the calculated management of life, unquote. Historians of European power must understand, Foucault argued, that, quote, the ancient right to take life or let live has been replaced by, and we should all be able to say this by rote, by the power to foster life or disallow it to the point of death. I think it's fair to say that Foucault's plea for us to throw off the grip of sovereign power and take up the image of biopower has become today's axiom. When it comes to an analysis of contemporary liberal power, whether it's late liberalism or neoliberalism, critical theory centers on its capacity to produce and manage life, liberal power's capacity to produce and manage life, to make live and let die, rather than to repress or kill life. Now this, so you should know, you should think, why is she telling us this? We know this. This evening I want to critically re-encounter this analytics of power, and, and an analytics associated with the axiom that liberal power centers on the production and management of life. I want to talk about how the late liberal enthrallment with these productive powers seems to have atrophied our capacity to consider the irreducible coincidence of the production 
and the extinguishment of life in all of our political projects and our ethical impulses. It is as if, in discovering that biopolitics works by, not by repressing or killing life, but by producing bodies and their pleasures through the management of populations, critical theory relieved itself the burden of ethical responsibility for the necessary extinguishments that its own future political imaginaries and projects entailed. The only ones that extinguished life were bad guys. But as a result, has become a, the fear is, and I think, that critical theory, and especially the critical theory of biopolitics and biopower, has itself become entrapped by a late liberal technique of pluralization. That is, late liberalism has domesticated potentiation, or sometimes what we call the politics of plenitude, such that we imagine that difference or worlds, forms of life, can proliferate without loss and thus without any ethical reflection. What might the future of critical theory have been, or what might it be, if it had distinguished its approach from power from the problem of the repressive forces, that is, it said, you know, we're not repressed, but nevertheless allowed itself to acknowledge its own act of ultracide and suicide. Now, what I'm going to do today is it's, it's, it's kind of a meditation. It's a dry, dry meditation. So I apologize in advance, and it goes on. Um, it works through sexuality, but in the tradition that thinks the purpose of understanding contemporary sexualities has to do with our ability to understand the formations of power that we're living in. And that's what I want to do today. Now, before I begin... Uh, and I'm going to turn, and uh, I'm just going to try and unpack what's at stake if we think that potentiation, that the that critical theory that thinks about plenitude and potentiation, the unthought of that is twofold. On the one hand, extinguishment, and on the other hand, what I call endurance that I've talked about before. Um, but before I turn to that, some might object to the way I've set up the, this argument. And they might say uh, Althusser and Foucault are being used as certain kinds of strawmen. Somebody object to them being used as names we use to mark the emergence of an era in which liberal formations of power are no longer understood as primarily constituted through a complex of repressive forces, but as most deeply rooted in their ability to produce what Kangian called forms of life. They should say to me, or might say to me, isn't it rather reductive, a rather reductive reading of these thinkers and those uh, that you place on one side or the other of the repressive or the productive forces? And I would say, on the one hand, well, it's easy. I mean, you, you can make gross comparisons here, and you can see some gross contrast between what I'm calling Althusser and what I'm calling Foucault. So, for instance, theorists associated with the repressive hypothesis Sexuality was repressed, gender is repressed, identity is repressed. Saw violence, those associated with the repressive hypothesis, saw violence as part and parcel of liberal and colonial power insofar as, and in the shadow of, Hegelian theories introduced by, amongst other people, Kochev into France. 
Althusser, Fanon, Bataille, all were influenced, as we all know, by the, uh, were part of the generation <coughs> confronted by Kochev's reading of Hegel and its compelling coordination of terror and recognition. In Kochev's account, the absolute liquefaction that the slave experiences that makes the slave as such in the battle of recognition is the necessary condition of self-consciousness. No wonder someone like Fanon saw an equally horrific subjective self-shattering in the, conf uh, conflagation, the conflagration of violent revolution as, a necessary, as necessary for the liberation of the colonized from the colonial order. So this real, this, this real engagement with the relationship between violence and subjectivity and subjectification and social ordering. As opposed to this interest in critical theory in the, you know, in the wake of this Hegelian thought that Kojev was um, introducing, would come others. And thus, the, when I say it's a, you know, what if we thought about this as a generational term? And these others emphasize the potential and potentiation of imminent life within every actual order. We can even think of rigore within this. The great revolutionary confrontation that we can think of through, say, Fanon or Mathusier gave way to inner revolutions. Violent liquefactions were replaced by the experimental potentiations of potentialities of bodies and their pleasures. And here I'm just obviously talking about use of pleasure, etc. And as they did, as a shift, some kind of shift in weight perhaps was happening, a certain aspect of the political started receding, I think, in, in a kind of silent background. That is, namely, progressive politics, relationship to the extinguishment of social projects and worlds. Foucault would famously turn away from subjective terror to subjective experimentation as the basis of certain forms of social transformation. So, care of the self, succeed to swap. Freedom from liberal formations of power came from the, quote, exercise of the self on the self by which one attempts to develop and transform oneself and attain a certain mode of being. So it's like, how do we take what is actual but only existing in its potential form and exercise it into being? So he would say, well, there's good contrast here. But a strong case could be made that in retrospect, when we look back, although Foucault and Deleuze and Grigoret and a number of theorists trying to make a strong contrast between what they were doing and what they were leaving, that in retrospect, the repressive and the productive hypotheses of power were hardly as oppositional as they might initially have seemed. You, you think Althusser's writings were certainly state-focused, Marxist feminists were state-focused, um, in ways that early Foucault certainly critiqued. But the writings of Althusser and Fanon and earlier Antonio Gramsci never represented the repressive terror of state violence as sufficient as a sufficient operation of power. We know that. They insisted that even when they called it the repressive or coercive powers of the state, these were always integrally dependent on its productive powers. That's the whole point of Gramsci. Who can forget Gramsci's account of hegemony with this rich metaphors of trench warfare, Fanon's account of the colonization of men through the insinuations of racist language, or Althusser's insistence that the ideological state apparatuses produce the subjects that they would then exploit. 
and Fanon surely thought as deeply about the constitution of subjectivities and the colonial condition as Foucault did in the Western ordering of things. So it was about how does how did the colonial order constitute subjects? He wasn't just thinking they were there already, that then were liberated. On the other side of the barricade, Foucault returned to the problem. So if you think, well, they were thinking about the productivity or potentiality of forms of life. On the other side of the barricade, Foucault, of course, returned to the problem of the state in his late thinking, and indeed castigating those on the left who had what he called the state phobia. We had to all get over our state phobia, because if we didn't, we were actually aligned with neoliberalism. And Deleuze remained more ambivalent, of course, about the wholesale rejection of the repressive approach to desire. Um, and it's one of the places where he and Foucault departed. Don't these facts suggest that the signs in this debate are closer than they might initially have appeared? And that this repressive hypothesis was never really repressed in the field of productivity? So what do we do with this? In a series of essays comparing Heidegger's evolving reflections on being, world, and thing, and Foucault's on subjectivity, power, and freedom, um, the philosopher Dreyfus pivots the confrontation between what Foucault and others were doing. And again, I think a rigor is really fundamental here. I mean, though, of course, there's an argument about the usual argument about a rigor. Pivots on the confrontation, not so much at the level of the negative or positive modalities of power, not repressive or productive, but at the level of each modalities of power, each modality of power's relation to the status of entities and truth. So it's not, is it repressive or is it productive? But what do we think about entities and truth? Dreyfus knows how both Heidegger and Foucault and Irigaray came to reject the repressive understanding of the world because it projected into every given world an essential truth independent of the particular arrangements of the world. And again, I think this is just axiomatic now. I think we could all, we can do, we dream this at night. No, we don't. We dream of new things. Okay. <laughs> the repressive understanding, in other words, produces truth as invariable. And that's what Ray Foucault and others were working against. For them, the real question wasn't the repressive or productive nature of liberal, colonial, gender, sexuality, power, but the status of any and everything positive as the motive force of subjectivity in history in the first instance. Easy enough. Thus, a deep link between Foucault's thought about the productivity of liberal power and his thoughts about the constitution of truth. Namely, that the language games of power make truth, and again, this is something that, you know, it's now taught in basic critical um, theory. The, the language games of power make truth, and that the truth of liberal power can be found in its techniques for making live and letting die. So the language games of uh, liberal power make truth, and the truth of liberal power, and this is like interesting like, term, can be found in its techniques for making live and letting die. When it comes to liberal power, productivity is, in other words, is squared. Liberal arrangements produce their own truths about power, and these truths about power center on its capacity to produce and manage life. Foucault's flip-flops are understandable in this light. 
when he's accused of flippity-flopping. Foucault was neither disinterested in the state nor only interested in productive power. His deeper interest was whether there was a center point around which all, any or all arrangements of power revolved, or whether power constituted the center point and thus the shape of imminent potentialities, what we might call otherwises, within a given arrangement. So, and for those of you who read like Wittgenstein, it's just, it projects an axial point. Now, in Foucault's late lectures, The Government of Self and Others, where he claimed that we should understand truth as a kind of activity, we see some of the ramifications of our, I think, critical theory's fixation on potentiality and productivity. And I, I really do mean this square, it's like enclosed itself. Truth of liberal power, seen as production of truth, it's truth is production of management of life. So if you go to his later lecture on the government of self and others, he claims, this was being claimed, still being claimed now, that we should understand truth as kind of activity. There's not truth, there's not a center thing and then qualities cluster around it. Truth is a kind of activity. A type of speech that breaks and characterizes the surface of a present reality, often in the form of a question or a refusal. And so, you know, we know that as performativity now. And he's engaging with this, these discussions of performativity. For Foucault, this kind of speech defined freedom as being otherwise to rather than liberated from. So, again, something he had been working on. But notice it's otherwise to rather than liberated from and rather than other. So, the kind of speech is not the speech of the other, not subjugated knowledges in the sense that those knowledges have the characteristics of another but that they have the characteristics of another wise. And what did he mean by that? What he meant, of course, and again, we, we know this, is that the other wise is a form of event. And the focus on the event the event of the otherwise emerging or a form of life emerging from the given order of life, given forms of life, shoved the question of the fact out of the way and elevated the image of the monstrous. Again, so the uh, it's not the other, self-other already in this dialectic. It's the otherwise as the monster and monstrosity. Thus, even with all their arguments, Deleuze's infatuation with monstrosity. That is, across the different theoretical approaches in the 60s and 70s, I think what we saw, and again, in, in, this is mainly an imminent critique, we saw the emergence of the argument that progressive theory must turn away from the, and again, this part you know, away from the search for the essences of things, and toward the search for the possible existences of other things. This probing then demanded of all of us a new relationship, not merely to the other, which, you know, was too simple. The other is already in the world, as it's actually arranged, but also to the otherwise. 
liberating the world from a transcendental ruler or essences so to produce new kinds of freedoms, existences, demanded we become at ease with the monstrous, with monstrosity, the queer, and queerness as a practice of existence. To be queer is not to be the other. Here's the, you know, this is the debate between, say, and I'll come back to the debate between, like, Lee Edelman, um, so the antisocial thesis folks and, um, and others, and the uh, queer bonds crack. But when we see this, when, when theories of potentiality, productive power, etc., get down the track to, right, to the kind of right, I think, right consequences. That is, if we're talking about existences, the otherwises, then it's, it really does say, look, it's monstrosities and monsters and queers and queerness. But it's exactly at this junction that two issues emerge that I don't think we've really thought about it. And, you know, and so if we, you think we have, then that's great, but I don't think we have. On the one hand, endurance, which I talked about a bit in the last book, and, the, and on the other hand, extinguishment, what I'm calling extinguishment. Endurance and extinguishment, I think, are the unthought of our love affair with potentiality and productive powers. And I think it matters in relationship to how we think our political actions and our ethics in relation to them. So let's take endurance. And do this very quickly, and I'm going to turn to extinguishment. If this way of thinking about freedom, which, again, for many of us is just so axiomatic, right? Freedom as potential existence, as a practice of becoming otherwise, right? as a stesis, and all these, then the freer the becoming for these folks. To rigorate, go to all these books really pushing pressure on The freer the becoming, the higher the phenomenological risk to the emergent thing. And that's what they all thought. The purer the event, the more existential the risk. Foucault was clear what he thought. The initial pure moment of turning, this turning against refusal or an eschesis, practice of pleasure or the woman's due, before, the moment of turning before, and this is why he actually, the stuff, at least with Foucault and performativity, is not the old performativity stuff. Right? Performing like the usual way in which we think performativity is like the ones that are already working. Hit the bottle, the ship goes off. I announce you, man and wife. He's looking at the moment before there's any context for performativity to work. So the initial moment of turning before a mooring or anchor, social anchor, can be established, and thus this initial turning, which does not have the habituated environments that give it its context and meaning, is for him nearly always suicidal. Because the monstrosity of this imminent form of what he called uh, speaking truth is usually treated monstrously by the given organization of subject, referent, and moral. Of course it is. It's turning right, and trying to make room for a form of life that has no life yet. 
And it's, for him, often usually treated as suicidal. Deleuze equally saw the pure, what he called the pure event as unrealizable and unlivable. What surprised him, the trope of choice within imminent ontology and queer studies and feminist studies um, and is an imminent ontology is this trope of ascesis, the exercise of the self. But the exercise is like, like you know, you got to keep fit if you're going to do this because everything's going to come after you. It's going to deprive you of everything that could possibly give you the conditions for thickening, extending, and then becoming dominant. But the exercises of the self that are necessary to secure a new body within a occur, again, within a hostile environment. That's part and parcel of what these theories of potentiality and productivity were working with. And this is why I think that when any theory, feminist or um, critical sexuality or critical race or critical colonialism, etc., works through this... Uh, through these um, uh, genealogies of imminent ontology. And when they go social, that is, when it's not a thought, but it's something that's working in a world with social life forms trying to emerge, that is, when we occupy the grounds that we say are the grounds of the social that the question of endurance becomes the necessary ethical and political problem. Fine. There's bazillions of forms of life that exist right here. The question isn't whether there are forms of life. The question is whether they can, when they emerge, whether they can endure these extraordinarily hostile conditions that rightfully see them as monstrous and monstrous. How do you endure long enough to think in, to extend, and to... And that's Something I talked about in the last book. So let me focus on extinguishment, which I'm hopefully will be clear. It's not repression. It's also not finitude. And I'll tell you at the end if we have time why. Okay. Okay. So endurance on the one hand, it's like why? Why are? How do we? How do we bring the question of endurance into critical theory of potentiation? And again, endurance is not essence, and so it's interesting, because we're so, I think, anxious about bodies, the materiality of them, rightfully, because you know we don't want to be essentialists, because that's the whole thing that we decided we didn't want to be. Um, what is endurance that's not essential? What's a form of life that's not in the essence of life? Okay, distinguishment. Now... It's not, again, it's not surprising ascesis. It's also not surprising that Spinoza's concept of conatus has been turned to so much in this literature as a potentially potent tool of particular importance. And we see Rosie Bradati really working this in really interesting ways. You know, you, you have to... It's a it really interesting way to perspective. Of particular importance for scholars in the, on the body and sexuality are Spinoza's thoughts about the infinite modalities of substance and the ethics of entities. To be sure, when Spinoza naturalized God, the divine, he didn't radically plasticize truth. Right? You know that. 
the eternal laws of nature remained for Spinoza and everything flowed from these laws. But what interested people, Bernardi, Deleuze, and others, is that for Spinoza, the essence of any finite mode, including, we could say, in a kind of form of life way, any arrangement, uh, agent small, the essence of it, but it, you know, the essence, the essence of any finite mode is a striving to persevere in being. And insofar as the object of consciousness or the striving is to persevere, the potential end of the striving might be not to persevere, to not become, to cease being altogether, or decide that you're going to literally withdraw from life. Now, it's not his philosophy, per se, that interests me here, but rather how numerous critical theorists have explored the potentiality of this notion that the essence of any finite mode, including any arrangement, is the striving to persevere in being, how they've explored the potentiality of this concept for the political present, especially the legacy of the notion, uh, how this gets tied up in the notion of bio, the biopolitical. Most of these theorists have stressed the productive positivities, again, of consciousness. It's about productive positivities, you know, striving to persevere being, being. Working through the writings of Deleuze, who, you know, as we know, radicalized the Spinozian substance by making it difference at the... There's no essence, it's just difference down there. Rosie Bernardi has noted the, quote, implicit positivity of the notion of desire as conduce. Desire is kind of striving, so she's working with desire and this kind of striving to persevere. And for Deleuze and Guattari, this implicit positivity dwelled not merely in all actual things, but in all potential things. And, you know, so they, they display, we don't have to do this, but they displace actuality, and they, uh, especially Deleuze, reorganizes it in potentiality and non-potentiality, potential not to be potential, blah, blah. And in his efforts to develop a positive form of biopower, the Italian political theorist Roberto Esposito has recently linked Spinoza's notion of conatus to his claim in the political treatise that, quote, every natural thing has as much right from nature as it has power to exist and act. And I just want you guys to see how much it's just like acting, acting, producing, producing. Esposito places the emphasis on, quote, the intrinsic modality that life assumes in the expression of its own unrestrainable power to exist. And in doing so, though, he brackets what might be a more Nietzschean reading, namely the relative power that restrains the existence and actions of various bioformations in a given field of equally opposing striving actors. And I just mean that something simple. You're always in a field of life, and what constrains you, there might be a restraining, something restraining the existence and actions of these various things trying to strive. But we don't look at that. It's as if saving biopower from its internal negativity necessitated banishing potential extinguishment from our attention. The affirmative nature of a biopolitical striving, everything striving to exist, and that's, you know, it's just like multiplicity and monstrosity, it's fabulous provides, I think, a penumbral shadow over a number of Foucault's interviews on gay rights movement, for instance. I think this is what's in behind there. <coughs> in these interviews, Foucault rejected the repressive, again, I'm going to say things you know, repressive understanding of power that he saw lurking in the political aspiration of gay liberation. 
even as he embraced the political potentialities of gay freedom. And again, the difference between freedom and, and repression. Gay friendship was a specific outcome for him of these gay experiments of freedom. They were intense and satisfying relations that refused to conform to the opposing norms of sexual promiscuity and intimate bonding. So they were monstrous. You fucked and fucked everybody, right? <laughs> but you also went home to your, your honey. Or, after fucking and fucking and fucking everybody, you created these incredible intimate bonds, right? So it refused this division and was clearly understood and recognized as a form of monstrosity at the time. When pressed to say how, he would say no to liberation, yes to gay freedom. Foucault replied that freedom is not the liberation of the gay subject into a, quote, happy human being imbued with sexuality to which the subject could achieve a complete and satisfying relationship. Freedom for him, again, you know this, is a set of ongoing reflexive practices that the subject undergoes in relation to a given formation of power. Freedom is a constant, considered potentiating rather than a liberating of difference. Freedom simultaneously confronts power and is power. It confronts the given organization of life, and it is a transformative capacity we exercise to disturb this given formation. Thus was Foucault able to square his interest in the creative innovations and variations of sexual acts and intimate things, emerging in what he called the laboratories of sexual experimentation in New York and San Francisco, even as he showed little interest in the liberation of the movement. The striving to potentiate and otherwise, which is what he saw these guys doing as they just refused, did something else. The striving to potentiate and otherwise within any given social formation has been, as you know, the focus of much queer theory and debate today. The emphasis on freedom as potentiation seems to have built a new corridor for thinking politically after the great, often violent, social upheavals of the 60s. And very little critical theory has consequently focused on repression, negation, or extinguishment. These, the focus on repression, negation, and extinguishment, has merely appeared in the sociological material or in public programming, such as the murder of the U.S. of Matthew, Matthew Shepard or the suicide of Taylor Clemente. The only time we start hearing about repressive, negative, repressive, um, sorry, repressive negation and extinguishment are in these other domains. Not so much in queer theory. There's notable exceptions that I'll hopefully we'll come back to. Or you could say, whoa, 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 wait, what about Edelman and Bersani and all those other ones associated with the anti-social critique in queer theory? Aren't they way into negativity? Right? So the, the heart of queer theory isn't the heart of queer theory. The um, always turning against any given social formation. And I want to come back to that. Um, I actually think it's building out affinity versus extinguishment, and that's where I want to come. But can I, I'm going to bracket that for a second. And argue and said that conventional liberal political science has indeed, in some ways, called queer theory to account for the focus on, the, this rigid focus on potentiality and productivity in ways that I think we haven't developed an answer for. And in particular, I think what Nancy Fraser for a very long time has been doing 
in trying to make the case for Habermas's German critical theory against what you know she and others would see as kind of the long arm of Foucault's influence on political theory. Her emphasis on the lack of an ability to think about in imminent theory and queer theory, especially, uh, uh, or you know, anti-normativity theory. If you think of Michael Warner's work, um, the trenchant critique based on the problem of adjudication and justification. How she says, do you guys do adjudication and justification? If everything's potentiation and we're just potentiating, potentiating. And at the heart of Fraser's critique of Foucault and queer theorists who were anti just uh, working on a certain kind of anti-normativity thesis or an anti-social thesis. At the heart of it is a simple question. What were the justifiable norms that allowed him or us or anyone who was for the monstrous, queer as a way of life, to adjudicate amongst the riotous proliferation of social forms, some of which actively seek to annul others? And uh, Fraser's wheels in the thing that we just don't want to talk about. What if one form of life striving to potentiate meets any other form of life trying to extinguish it? If we have no normative commitment, were we simply observers of actual and potential life as they struggled often confrontationally to be and persevere in being rather than actors politically in the directionality of life? Or did we just think, no, 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 we just everything's just potentiating. If every each and every actual world and each and every each and every potential world have an equal right to strive to persevere, and this is again, I, I'm in this. I I have to say I kind of believe this, so I'm talking to myself here. It's like a lyric poem <laughs> into a bizarre conversation I'm having. So anyway, if he, every, each and every actual world and each and every potential world has an equal right to strive to persevere, then on what ethical and political grounds do, distingu- do, distinct, do decisions to extinguish, kill, or let die one or another world rest? Or do we think that, nah, nothing dies? The Habermasian answer is to bracket all but one normative commitment say the normative commitment to deliberative reason as a basis of public decisions. What, Fraser and others ask, is Foucault's commitment, with Foucault as a kind of specter. What if one striving, potentiating, meets and opposes another? Can a progressive politics based on either the anti-normativity thesis or the monstrosity thesis avoid this question? How would the sign progressive read or queer read if it was understood as a way of actively maintaining, producing, and extinguishing worlds. It is that there is an unavoidable relationship to it that our attempt to potentiate and the fact that we're going to extinguish. Is the refusal of the repressive hypothesis, sorry, it's refusal of the repressive hypothesis, how is a certain kind of political and theoretical space run away from political and ethical problems. Now, I myself think that Habermas and Fraser avoid the problem of distinguishment myself. Um, so I'm not saying they answer it. Um, 
Indeed, Nancy concludes her very uh, influential essay from Recognition and Redistribution by stating her hope to do justice to all current struggles against injustice. So it's very liberal, like just all of them. Um, as others have noted, all current struggles against injustices can only become one justice if the contradictory struggles have been leveled by some ruler or, an, ruler or another, a cardinal measure. So properly speaking, we can only always say, do justice to all current struggles against injustice that meet my measure for what injustice consists of. But nevertheless, so I don't, it's not like I think, oh, Nancy, you've got the answer. Um, but I do think her point's well taken, nevertheless. Even if you could apply it to Habermas as much as anybody else. After all, like any politics, properly speaking, intentional progressive politics based on the positivities of potentiality seek to change the actual world because they find this world unjust, wrong, or aesthetically displeasing. Or maybe they're bored. That is, they seek to extinguish one form of life with the hope that another will emerge, which is less wrong, less just, or more to their standards, the right and the beautiful. The stakes of this debate rest in part on what constitutes politics, of course, properly speaking. But let's just pull down a little bit and take as an example the confrontation between the so-called inclusive and transformational wings of contemporary gay and lesbian politics. So if you have the inclusive, we want to be included. A large part of the progressive gay-lesbian rights movement seems to fit squarely within the recognition camp, kind of on Nancy's side seeking to do away with the sexually discriminatory institutions of marriage, civil service, immigration, and nationalization <laughs> through the politics of sexual recognition. And we see in um, France right now this being played out. So in the front of Le Monde uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, unless it was this morning, I don't know. Um, you know, the, the rallies against marriage for all. Another part of the movement uh, argues against uh, argues that the politics of inclusion is not truly political because it doesn't touch the class, racial, or imperial underpinnings of liberal inclusiveness. So they sometimes they turn to someone like Rancière, but often turn to, again, imminent critique um, and the way it's played out in queer theory and see that this inclusion of the other is a tactic of stealing the potential emergence of the other whys. So you just include them and then you get them where all the others can line up and you, you um, extinguish the possibility of some other monstrous form emerging. Political action for them, this kind of inclusive political action for them, merely takes the potential of the whys and redistributes into existing social categories. Right in the normal distribution of roles, places, and occupations. We, we, we all become people who can love, and we all become people who can get married and have these kinds of commitments. Now, the inclusive wing, I'm just using these grossly, the inclusive wing of the gay lesbian movement can say, uh, in relation to marriage, says, look, this is just stupid. If you include uh, gays and lesbians into marriage, marriage itself will change. So they say that in inserting this in actually changes the way in which it's structural, structural, structured. And again, this replicates very old politics and gender theory and feminist theory, etc. 
So rather than focusing on which of these two wings of the progressive gay, lesbian, and queer movement is more or less transformative, which is what we get stuck on, who's more transformative, let's pause on the image of social becoming captured in terms that are used all the time, terms such as transformation and rupture. This will rupture it. This will transform it. No, it won't. Yes, it will. No, it won't. Why do neither side of this debate emphasize their desire to extinguish one world as the basis of pulling another world into being? Why don't we both say, no, I'm killing more than you're killing. I'm extinguishing more than you're extinguishing. Look at the rhetoric. Aren't these forms of extinguishment, though, deeply insinuated in the active and experience of progressive justice, rather than merely superficially related to it? Having experienced the injustice of sexual discrimination, whether personally or witnessed it in others, you have great capacity of empathy. I seek to extinguish the social world as it is currently constituted so that others do not have to experience this injustice. Gay, lesbian, trans bashings and killings make their compelling appearance here. Isn't it on behalf of the Matthew Shepherds and the potential Matthew Shepherds, and this is a U.S. context, that, that forces us to find a way of extinguishing the possibilities of such actions in the future. Extinguishing them, making them unthinkable, making them impossible, making them the unthought. But how in acting decisively to transform, i.e. produce a world, in which such actions are unthinkable, are we engaged in, ourselves, an act of ultracide and suicide? And why won't we just say it? Take ultracide. We can certainly focus on the positivities of freedom, as Foucault did, when discussing the ethics of friendship and the care of the self that he witnessed amongst gay men in the 70s and 80s. The ongoing reflexive practices that define for Foucault gay freedom can certainly be seen as the potentiating rather than liberating of a difference. And I think that's right. But there are other practices of sexual freedom seeking to potentiate a different and opposing world. It's really easy in the U.S. to come up with examples. The sexual politics, for instance, of so-called ultra-conservative uh, fundamentalist Christians. Not only are members of this public striving to persevere, that is, they too are striving to persevere in being, within what they view as a hostile, sexually saturated culture awash with homosexuals and aborted fetuses, and they, you know, that's what's happening to them, they're striving, they are striving to potentiate a world in which the intensity of their striving would give way to their version of palliative care to an easier form of coping. They don't want to keep striving. You want to pull, they want to pull their world into being. To do this, however, they must rupture and transform the given world around them. They will not be appeased by appeals to the private nature of religious belief. And I can't believe people still say, well, you can believe that. They are not struggling to be added to the world as another sector of the pluralized public. They are seeking to anchor all possible ways of asking and answering questions about sexuality around a theology of sin, pleasure, and temporality. In the world they want, all physiological, psychological, biological, and discursive approaches to sexuality would be anchored in the first and last instance in an understanding of the world that would include this as a central battle, one between God and the devil, the resurrection of the body, the abomination of the flesh outside the sacrament of marriage. Do I want this potential world? 
<laughs> to become the actual world. Huh, you would be so, yes, I do, no. Um, however, but however I respond to this question, I can't avoid the face, facing that if I'm going to be true to a certain kind of theory, and I like to be careful, you know, if I'm saying this, then I have to say that. It's, you know, it's, uh, maybe it's a logical fallacy. But if I say, because I come from imminent creatique and this notion of uh, plenitude and potentiality, that every entity strives to persevere in being, and every entity has equally the same right to do so, to be and to become, what do I do? Do I say they are not human? Do I say, well, they don't actually because they're wrong? Is it, on what basis do I turn to them and squish them like a book? Or do I just pretend I'm not? Take suicide. And here I don't mean suicide in the sense or at the level of those who take their lives such as Tyler Clemente. Although there's, we can go there. It's something, it's actually that's on the other side. So suicide as we usually use it, it would be on the other side. Ultra side. Rather I mean how in the attempt to save them, these folks like Tyler and others, I extinguish the world that gave sense to me. And I'll unpack this. It's really straightforward. After all, if we understand, and again, if we're careful and we say, well, this is what we think, and let's run it along. After all, if we understand subjectivity as a phenomenon that emerges from within a social order, then this I that experienced di discrimination is the same I that was produced by this discrimination. We, right? I may reflect on the injustice of the world and seek to extinguish the world as it is because I think it's unjust, because I, you know, rips me. But as a result, I am seeking to extinguish, in part, me, since I am the result of the conditions that made me. And I don't want anybody else to have those conditions. The metaphysics of liberation do not uncover, the metaphysics of liberation do not uncover me in this moment. I must not only extinguish that, in other words, those people who want to make the world in a way that I just think, wow, I just don't want to be in that world, actually. I not only extinguish that, but I'm also going to extinguish me. When I extinguish, in other words, I am making a world in which I no longer make any sense. And I am making it without the capacities that I'm trying to bestow on subsequent generations and without a certain knowledge of the subsequent world I'm going to bring on. When I act to, act to lend my effort to undermining what I perceive as an unjust form of life, if I, and again, don't worry, it's not I, I, worlds, right? If these worlds, I, us, work, we're going to be here and yet not of here anymore. The account that best captures for me the simultaneity and pathos of this kind of what I'm calling suicide as a necessary condition of progressive social politics comes from James Baldwin's Notes on the Native Son. In the essay that gave this volume its title, 
Baldwin reflects on the pathos of this father who, quote, had to prepare the child for the day when the child would be despised. By, quote, creating in the child a stronger antidote to this poison than he had found from himself. Through the images and recourse to images of poison, amputation, and gangrene, Baldwin conveys not only the subjective conditions of domination, but also the existential conditions of social rupture. How bodies and minds can remain at once in the world and out of sequence with the world it is seeking to create or has successfully created. Son looks at son, son at father, mother at daughter, and subsequent generations to antecedent ones with the same now painful alienation. Who are you? You seem monstrous to me. And the more monstrous you seem as the, the, the more monstrous that generation views you as, the more effective your politics has been. How do we think politically and ethically in this kind of space? That the ends of our practices are the extinguishment of worlds. And why haven't we? And here I'll just end by noting one thing that seems to have continually interrupted our capacity to think about our own, the, this coordination of potentiation and extinguishment. And, and elsewhere I've talked about endurance. And that has to do with the way in which I think late liberal imaginaries have colonized and domesticated theories of potentiation. And have done so primarily through the imaginary of pluralization. And that's where I'm just going to end. It seems to me that there's a conflation that has emerged between the concept of, sometimes we can say multiplicity, we can argue about the like what's at stake as we move from particular theory to particular theory, but I'm speaking generally, through this image of multiplicity within any given world. And so the concept of what we call potentiation or plural, um, sorry, of um, productivity and the politics of pluralism. Theories of multiplicity, of potentiation, of monstrosity, of the emergence of the otherwise, posit that in any given arrangement, multiple potential otherwises, future others if you want, already exist internal to these arrangements. That is, the multiplicity or the potential of the otherwise is in the actual, it's not somewhere else. And then the critical question we ask is, what releases one or another of these potential otherwise? How do they endure? And how do they extinguish as a condition of their own emergence. Theories of political pluralism, or pluralization, on the other hand, focus on how a set of existing diverse social groups can be related in such a way that they can coexist peacefully side by side. We just add more. More little spaces. Political pluralism, in other words, is a governmental technique for managing difference and telling all of us that politics is never, ever about the hard looking at something or someone 
and extinguishing them even as you keep them the same level of existence that you keep yourself. Thank you. Now, I promised you were open to questions at this point. We do a dance to get, we got some time to think. <laughs> we could. <laughs> some potentials you've suggested shouldn't necessarily come into being. Yeah. Well, can I, um, I mean, I'm very much convinced by what you say, sorry, yeah. I'm very much convinced by what you say about the, uh, uh, the altar side, right, and, yeah. and the, the kind of ways in which, you know, you can't just, you can't just think of politics in which, you know, let a thousand flowers blossom and there's no kind of like tension and no judgment that one has to make between them. I'm not so convinced by the suicide point though. I mean, because it seems to me the, the fact that the changes that you might be seeking, if successful, will extinguish the kind of world that created the kind of person you are. Mm. I mean, it seems to me, I mean, given that we are changing all the time, yeah. which is part of the point that you're making, yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't see that as such a compelling dilemma that, that faces us. I mean, I definitely take the, the one about, you know, the extinguishing of the other. But I don't, I don't yet get what you're saying about the suicide, I think. Can I push a little bit, just so, so I'm clear about, to everyone about what I'm saying before. The, if we mean, in relation to ultracide, um, if we mean by judgment something that begins to sound a little Schmidtian in terms of, like, a decision, right? Okay. Um, that's fine. And you know, we can talk about unintended, we can talk about all of that. But I'm arguing that, that you, that's all you can do. And anything other than simply, well, if I, and I try and, you know, I, try, I bring in, like, say, Christians who find me an abomination, or whatever, whoever would find my, you know, whatever I am as a way, a form of life, like, reprehensible. Um, that is, there's an active attempt to create the world such that I'm unthinkable. Or friends of mine are, and they'd say my very old family in Australia is unthinkable. And we see this in sex panics in Australia right now to make form of life unthinkable. It seems to me that if you're, again, if you're going to carefully move from this kind of conatus potentiality, you have to do that as you see that they are existing at the same level as you. Right? Um, and a lot of this has been coming out of, a lot of this thing has been coming out of um, this whole Anthropocene, Anthropocene literature around like humans and nature and human and Earth, um, and this huge anxiety that that we created the conditions of a kind of species death, and the huge anxiety about that. And so it's really is pushing to say yes, judgment. But not adjudication, oh, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But I, I don't think we have those very. I mean, the, I think it's still the case that in progressive politics, bad people extinguish. We potentiate, and that's what I'm trying to get us to push back a little bit. In terms of suicide, it's interesting because again, the, here the the 
trope of ascesis is so very interesting. Um, and we can go from Foucault to Serre. Michel Serre has this little book, um, Variations on the Body, I think it's called, this little white chat book. And, um, and again, he, he literalizes the concept. So he, you know, it's this beautiful meditation on mountain climbing and gymnastics and um, uh, that it's kind of in the, the long arm of habitus, you know, practices of the body, emotion, all that. Um, queer theory in the, the romping 80s and 90s where the body was completely plastic and, you know, we put things on and took things off and they were body extended. It's really this emphasis on the plasticity of being. And there's a really interesting tension for me between this emphasis on the plasticity of being and the emphasis on the exercise of the self, ascesis. Because it suggests, of course, the ascesis side suggests that it's really not, like, no, we're not endlessly <laughs> plastic. Right. For someone like me, how does a certain kind of liberal notion of human potentiation and self-expression and endlessly development really push against our understanding about the limits of plasticity, even though it surrounds us all the time. I mean, we, we all know it's like, who are, I hate to be like silly, but like, who are these youth? I mean, yeah, I can be really involved in like different kinds of world, of course. I mean, it's me. I'm, it's classically, it, my profession is such. But there is a space that I just want to give a little bit of a nod to um, and because I think if we allowed us to look at this space, maybe we would have a different rel political relationship to these worlds we're building, and then sometimes we're shocked. And I, I, again, Baldwin is so very interesting. It's like he looks at his dad. His dad wanted to build a world in which, maybe not Baldwin in particular, he didn't like all of Baldwin's way of being in the world. Um, and here's Baldwin looking at his dad going... I can see the, the line in you. I can see the effects of poison. And you can't just, you know, you, there's just not a soak that you can do that's just simply going to get rid of that poison. That's all I'm saying. And so I just want to understand why we won't look at that. Let's stick there. Yeah. Please. That's a coin. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Is, can you hear that? Mm -hmm. I can't hear it in my head. Oh. Um, <laughs> gosh. Um, I, so I hear, you, I hear one of the things that you're saying is that given the uselessness of critical theory uh, that colludes with its object, <laughs> right, rather than uh, engaging or imagining or acting in ways to produce uh, another, a different world... Um, that given and, and in lots of ways, and I and I think I agree with you. Um, you might disagree, though. Well, I, <laughs> yes, I might not say uh, useless. But yeah. but you know that, that that's the thesis. That look, you know, critical theory keeps on doing this thing. That that actually, in lots of ways, what you were describing was a kind of conflation of of, of analysis and social world in in some ways. Um, but I suppose it's so that in a certain sense, the critic and their form of analysis becomes uh, a form of collusion with the social world it appears to be wanting to transform because of its failure of attention to the things that you mentioned. Okay, so if that's the case, and I, and I think I, I probably uh, agree with you, 
the step that I'm not so sure about is, well, you, it sounds like you want us to sort of stay in, in a sense with Foucault, though, and, and accept his version of, of power, but instead kind of roll, uh, fold back into that an, uh, an understanding of, say, extinguishment or endurance. Hmm. Right? But why? I mean, why not just abandon that form of critical theory and look at, uh, at other kinds of uh, social and political theories that have always been attentive to questions of endurance and questions of extinguishment, such as, I'm thinking here of anything as diverse as, as, as psychoanalysis, right. for example, which would right. be particularly focused on dealing with monsters, yeah, but from a very right. different perspective, that's and right. in precisely in order to enable people to endure in a better life, and so on, right, yeah. uh, in a range of ways, or forms of uh, activism, global union activism, varieties of engagement that have always insisted that extinguishment is the uh, is is a is a kind of a, in other words, yeah. maybe maybe one other answer could be that critical theorists are not the right people to be doing. Well, <laughs> that's where we disagree with the best. Yeah, let, let, no, it's a, it, let me answer the question very seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the. As a big, big background to all of this is indeed a certain kind of here. You could call it a decision, but I think you, one finds themselves on one side or another of certain things. And I find myself on a side that tries to that I would have to say believes, but it's not really belief. I just it fits my aesthetic self. self that. Um, those theories, of which psychoanalysis is a critical theory, which I, I'm hearing you don't want to throw out. Um, I don't know. Um, but, you know, we, a number of theories that subtend a number of practices and back and forth, that the notion of a world that in which there isn't a thing around which and against which everything pivots is where I fall. I, I don't think there's a something on which everything and anything pivots. And there are some that... Now, that doesn't mean in any given formation there's not a central around which the thing is able to hold itself. Right? And that's one of the things I've thought about a lot in terms of late liberalism. So what is, in this formation, what are the things that allow it to be so enduring. And one of the reasons I'm thinking this is that part of what allows this liberal imaginary to do is to, uh, to endure is to, to, it doesn't argue, but it has a certain, experience a certain kind of, well, it's the one form of governance that does not mean to do harm. Right? And you just think, that's crazy. But if I think there are a number of other worlds that are existing, that's all. Right. On what basis? And, I, I, and, I, and each world sets up its own ruler. It's a simple question. On what basis do I, as an activist, make a decision to extinguish another world? And I am interested in what theories or social groups you know of who can answer that. 
Well, those are the, the, the set of normative presumptions that allow them to make those claims. Yeah, exactly. So it's not my way of doing things. I just right. think, really? Good for you. I do good for you and your normative claim, right? But that normative claim is already in the world. That's it, right? That you see? So, and, which is fine. I mean, again, totally fine. We work in the world that is structured by these normative claims. That's what a form of life is for me. Um, and all active work, which is for me is the production of these forms of life, has to if they deal in that world. Of course they do. But I am interested in this otherwise, not just the other. And that's that, that's that's what I'm probing. Yeah. Okay. That's it. That's all it. And and, and I'm I am arguing that this is way unthought, and we have no muscle other than relying on our own normative justifications. We have no muscle when it comes to extinguishing something. And I'm saying we need to. We need to have a muscle that is not normative and extinguishes. Mm. Yeah, mm. <laughs> Because honestly, I mean, it's the whole thing, it's like, yeah, it's, I don't think we have that. And why? Because we do all the time. And when we extinguish based on normativity, there's, there's just the rankings that go up. When I get sick, I'm terrified. How many people have the flu in here? <laughs> if that flu comes, I'm dousing it with Tamiflu, right? But can I douse something with Tamiflu and still, like, not say, you horrible bug, you? And there's just, it, it, it's a world that I was taught that you, kill, that you extinguish and yet you don't put yourself above it. <laughs> it's weird and interesting what kind of politics would be. Sorry, that's, that's what I'm trying to push at. So if we see that, yeah. And that's why I'm not saying it's useless. I'm saying, no, you guys actually said the right thing, but you don't play it out. Do you want to point at people you want me to? Oh, yeah, yeah, you point. I'm just... Okay, let's get one up here and then one over here. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for the really interesting talk. Um, Actually, the question I... I was just going to ask you to mm. to consider a question you posed to yourself, uh, and I'll, I'll say that in a sec, but it just struck me when you were saying, why do we need to, why we need to think about extinguishing without being normative is because we do it all the time. And to me, that seems to suggest a practical rather than theoretical or abstractly logical answer. Yeah. And that leads me to the to yeah. the... To asking you to answer your question more. You, you said in passing, maybe it's a logical fallacy to want a theoretically consistent position. Yeah. And I, th- I, I thought yeah. you, in a sense, it, s- it seemed possibly to, to dismiss that, um, that possibility, or you may just have just not had enough time. But I was wondering if you might, um, <laughs> if you might consider it, because it seems to me that that, that's, that maybe is a possibility. Um, and um, that we shouldn't worry about consistency. Well, are, yeah, are we expecting too much from abstract theoretical logic for, for it to you know, be able yeah. to work itself out in a pure sort of sense? Absolutely. You know, here, here, I'll, I'll answer this in a way that is really not going to be satisfying um, at all. <laughs> um, and all I can do is kind of say, trust me, nothing, <laughs> nothing I think as abstractly as this might appear comes from abstraction. Um, I can, when I talked about extinguishing and infinity being different, I can tell you concretely why I've been thinking about that. And it has to do with, um, I can go in different 
I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, can I give you an example? And then, okay. So, yeah, what are you going to say? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I'm working on this uh, augmented reality project. It's like, um, uh, you guys know what augmented reality is? Oh, it's simple. It's like your cell phone, your smartphone, and you, you geotag media files to play only at approximate place. Is that any of that making sense? So, like, for instance, we could be sitting here, and it, your cell phone would go beep, and then you could put something on there, like either an, ar- an archival document or actors could be acting it out, in which the LSE in 1700 was here, or maybe in whatever. So you're in reality, but it's, quote, augmented. And this whole project started in a very com- somewhat complicated way, but it all started very simply because I had been where I live and work in Australia for about 25 years at that point. And because of the structures of settler colonialism and racism, etc., the time clock of indigenous life is much speedier than white life. So a generation... The old generation is 60s, right? So they're passing away, passing away, and I have this huge archive at this point. And I say to those who are left, I say, what am I supposed to do with this? There's only a few people left. What am I supposed to do with this? Some people said, oh, you should work with the libraries. They're digitalizing everything. It's like, oh, okay. And then a couple other older men went and said, you know what you should do with that bath? And I said, no. They said, you should burn it. You should dig a hole. You get it all, burn it, and then bury the hole, stomp on it, and let the white men take everything. I said, what? <laughs> what? And they said, yeah, because if it's not alive, it's not. And, you know, and then these white people just come and put more concrete everywhere, and then it'll just be all concrete, and then they'll be dead. And I said, oh, Okay. But I didn't do it. I mean, couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. That's why I was so white. <laughs> I just couldn't. The idea of burning an archive just made me liquefy. Okay. They're in there, and then how this leads to an engagement with this Anthropocene that's all about the finitude of man. There wasn't about finitude. It was about a world is being extinguished, and then another. But it doesn't, the world's still there. It's not like the end of us or the end of man is what's being argued about. It's the end of a form of life that's looked at with that. And there's a remarkable like, judgment, activism, like, you know, there's real activism, there's attempt to keep the world into being, all sorts of things. But there's also like, well, okay, if that's what's going to win, that's, then that will be that and that will be that. So it doesn't pith so I've been thinking, what is that? And what muscles do I have to build in order to produce someone who can do that? And for me, thinking is a way of also producing muscles. I produce a muscle, and I think, and I produce enough of the muscle, and I think, and I produce... Mu- That's what, I mean, I don't know. It's all the same thing for me. So... Maybe you can get there from hither skither, but I, I just can't. I can't move in that way. Some people can, and that's cool. But if, yeah, I, I, I say it's somewhat unsatisfying. I did enjoy the, your the talk. Microphone. Thank you. Thank you. 
I did enjoy your talk, but some of it was a bit above my head, so I hope that my comment uh, is appropriate. It seems to me that the truth about power is its constantly repressive nature, and that removes its potential to equality, harmony, and uh, a political society. And I wonder what we can do about this monstrous situation. Well, there's a... It's actually the, the folks that I was talking about are trying to argue against this idea that the truth of power is the repressing of... Yeah. Um, rather than... So they think that the, whatever the new order would be, if the newer it was... That is, if you could measure difference from one to a million, the more different it was, the more none of us, none of us, would want it. It would appear as a monstrosity. Uh, just the next row back. That's actually what the, that's the claim. Now, what we do with that claim—that's that's another question. But that is the claim. The more of an event, the more eventful something is, the more monstrous and precarious its its nature. Yeah. Um. I. Thanks for a talk. I need to read more. <laughs> I Aww. was just wondering. <laughs> read less. Isn't that what I'm mean? doing? Read less. Read less. <laughs> so, what what I'm thinking is that um, the talk seemed to be full of sort of um, violences, mm -hmm. and uh, even if I'm trying to think, do I mean extinguishment or do I mean potentiation? That there's violence. In both, and the, the same thing, yeah. Violence either in fragmentation to a million different shatterings, or, or uh, sort of a cycle of consumption. I, and I just would really like to hear: Are you? Oh, is this a way for us to think about violence? Both because you've mentioned examples of physical violence, political violence, mm. and sort of, or are we getting to symbolic violence of a kind of erasure of the possibility of, of? things being ideas being validated even right. just just I would just be interested to hear you speak about violence and right. how you see it contained in these ideas right I'm going to go sideways into something that's going to probably I don't know which whether it will or won't come out or so I don't even know but I have to tell you I've been sitting in a room in Berlin for like three days in the house of world culture and with people talking about the Anthropocene. Do you guys know what this is? I've mentioned it before. It's a geological argument that we're in a new time in which man has become the dominant force in geological and climatic futures and it's a disaster. It is just an unmitigated we're already dead. And you just think oh, okay. Um, and so a lot of very, you know, a lot of, of the discussion is what we need, what we need are these new imaginaries of the relationship between culture and nature. And I think culture and nature, oh my God, <laughs> culture and nature. Um, 
a new relation of man and the invite, you know, all these things. That's what we need. We need a new, and it was great actually because there were artists. So it's one of these curated things, which I just love in Europe, in which there's art and performance and scholars, and we're all look at each other like, what? Um, but it's still fun. And I don't know what led me to do this, but someone was talking about we need, like, what will man become? What will humans become? Some people said man, some people remember to say humans. What will humans become in this new Anthropocene? In which the temperature's up and the ozone and the dust clouds in Australia and all that. And I said, why do you think that the new person, the new kind of species hasn't already become? That is, this new thing is already amongst us. They said, well, what is that? I said, the autistic human. a certain kind of autism. Why? Because it, from the perspective of the earth, a form of human being that is more related to animals and objects and less to other humans might be a good thing. Now, hopefully that seems horrifying and that's what I'm talking about in terms of violence that's, you can't say that on so many different levels I think I, I'm hoping that it is bothersome in many many levels and yet if you back up from the earth's perspective and you from the earth there's no earth but I don't know from a fox fox's perspective <laughs> what kind of human would you want extinguished Yes, you want the you want a lot less of them, and you want some of them who are so so. And that just takes it in a whole other. And then we're not even talking about like forms of life in terms of um, culture or whatever. We're really talking about forms of life. Yeah. Now let's go on the back up here. So violence in all sorts. That was a wonderful talk. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I sort of. Um, this is a little bit different from that, but it's more to the questions that were being asked before. But how do you, what is this, uh, where does this take you, though, in terms of the question of the political and violence in the state and power? Uh, is, I mean, right. isn't that now the question that's at center yeah. for you? And, and where does this take, you know, where do you see yourself moving with that? Because I, I thought that the, the issues you've raised are really wonderful and, 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 and brilliant, but it will be, I'm interested to hear if you have any, you know, what sense uh, you have of the, of, of what to, you know, where the ground is for future, for future thought um, in terms of thinking. About the, about right, the political. on one hand, it would seem I'm saying, look, let's all go out and extinguish things. Like, come on, get and there's where the activism. Like, let's go get a rock and throw some shit at people because, but you know, but as we're doing it, just say you have an equal right to exist too. Wham. Okay. Um, that might be an implication, and then I see I would say, but we should not be logical. <laughs> go to the logical conclusion there. Um, so I think, for me at least, it's simply an exercise, whether successful or not, of doing something else rather than deciding whether or not we should be violent, picking up a rock and chucking it. 
Instead, for me, it really much stays within, for better or worse, stays within the exercise of self in which I'm trying to, um, at least for myself, invite myself, if no one else, to not be liberal. To be something else. Um, and that's why it falls, it, it extends farther than simply like human politics and has to do with this, the, the kind of land politics and animist politics and totemic politics and that a lot of people, including, you know, old friends of mine are engaged in. Um, so if I want to become other than this form of power... I just try and f- literally sometimes use those things spray and try and see where I'm doing it all the time. And I th- and again, this all ends up in pluralization for me. And if I say no, you're not pluralizing anything. You are actively confronting, but. Even with the, you know, it's where it becomes a little Schmidtian, right? Insofar as he's very formally, just a very formalist theorist. That is, it's not with judgment and adjudication. Friend enemy is not a really even a value judgment. It's just a structural account. Yeah. Now. It's not Schmidtian insofar as, from my understanding, you know, my reading of it, and those of it who are political theorists will definitely fix me, um, uh, in which there's a necessity to go in and create these kinds of divisions, right? Um, but nevertheless, there is this just structural fact that he's looking at versus a moral fact, and it's why I I agree that he's not very liberal because it's. He's removed it from the, the moral. Okay. Um, let's get the mic. Just put that. Let me just take a couple more questions. So the man just next to the one we asked earlier. Yeah. But it's worse than that. That it would be, oh, we just pick yeah. up rocks and chuck rocks and we want pick up rocks and chuck rocks. I mean, you sometimes you have to pick up rocks. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I don't have any rocks with me. Oh, so none okay. of that's going to be happening now. <laughs> um, but I did... I had two things that I wanted to bring up. One was sort of harping back to Claire's comment before um, and thinking about reflexivity um, because part of what I heard you saying and maybe I missed part of the end of it was, was sort of uh, I'm choosing the, this form of critical engagement because it fits my aesthetic self. And I wonder where then the moment of reflection comes oh, in yeah. needing That's to right. annihilate the self in order to think about the critique that one likes. Right. Right. Um, and that actually... I would sort of agree with Claire that it, there's this, this need for a psychoanalytic or thinking about this type of violence or extinguishment through possibly a trauma or through an, an allowing of the other, even as I they have negate been traumatized you. Right. Many times. And as a young child, too. Yeah. And then the second part of <laughs> we can talk about that later. But Maybe my, <laughs> I was going to tell you about my sock puppet. <laughs> but the second part of my question was then. Along those same lines, yeah. um, you brought up the example of Matthew Shepard. Yeah. And right, so Matthew Shepard's yeah. father was very much for the death penalty. Yeah, right? that's right. And in the act, in the moment of being sort of sitting there in the trial, mm-hmm. he and, and Matthew Shepard's mother 
both advocated against the death penalty. Yeah. And so where is, the, where is sort of this allowing for the other, allowing for an annihilation of the self, uh, sort of allowing for um, a reflexive call to think about that, um, possibly in restorative justice, possibly in psychoanalysis, possibly in these other modes. And I, maybe I didn't no, no, hear your... Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the question about reflexivity is, I touch on it in the introduction to... I don't call it reflexivity. I'll tell you what I call it. Um, in the Economist book. Um, the way in which I touch on it or poke at it, because I don't like reflexivity for a lot of reasons, just the, the model of it gives me the hives. But um, So I... <laughs> clearly I was very traumatized as a child. <laughs> um, but anyways, the, the, but instead I... I been toying around with again just watching and you know that I find the, the grammatical construction in English of I find myself obligated to um, so you know instead of obligation as this I decide to do this theory or be on that political or hang out with these people or understand myself I find it's a kind of retrospective noticing of a movement. Right? And then I look at it, if I, you know, and that's where the reflexivity comes in. If I, and what allows me to do that or not, and people do that or not, it's a very interesting question to me. But in any case, like you, you, you're watching yourself. Um, and then there are all sorts of reflexive questions that come in. Do I push? myself to keep going? Do I change course? Do I exercise an ascesis to become somewhat else? Like, you know, there's a very simple story where I'm in Chicago in Haskell Hall. I think I published it somewhere. But anyways, I'm in Chicago in Haskell Hall in anthropology land. It's a big building and they don't have an elevator and they have this, this beautiful staircase that like queens and kings would go up and down. And my first year there I was on the third floor. Um, and there, the men's bathroom is on the third floor and the women's bathroom is on the second floor. And it's very late and there's no one in the building. It's probably three in the morning or something. I don't know what it was. Um, and I had to go to the bathroom. Simple. And I thought, there's no one in the building. I'll just go pee in the guy's bathroom. So I walked down the hall to, and the door was open and there were urinals here and then a toilet there. Like what I call a toilet, not a urinal. So anyways, a <laughs> urinal, but that's just me. So watch <laughs> this. So I go to the door and I find myself stopping. And then I see myself, I experience myself blushing. Why? Well, because, uh, you know, I am pausing at a door frame because of the sex over it when no one's in the building. Who am I given that that's what I did? Right? That doesn't fit with me, queer Beth, who doesn't give a damn what, where she pees. And yet there I was, hesitating on the doorstep or finding myself hesitating in the doorstep, and then reacting the affectively, you could say reacting vis-a-vis -vis this index of a blush to that, and then, and then I'm all in pieces, I'm completely fragmented. <laughs> Reflexivity. Right. Okay, what, what, what cultivated in any of us, and me there, or any of us in similar positions, the hyper-surveillance of all these things, and then a demand that I give a kind of myself. 
Psychoanalysis tell me that? I don't know. I see a lot of people that, 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 that I see them fragmenting, but they don't even seem to notice. <laughs> right? So it's just, it's, yes, you could go there, and that's, that's, if you find it productive, you should do that. But for me, it's not productive. And in part, it's not productive because I'm not a, it's a long thing about structuralism and pragmatics. But, but I'm not against it. I don't care where people go if it's productive. And the, I don't know, but the, so I, again, I just, the, thinking about obligation as this form of finding, for me, it's a little more useful because it interrupts. Um, for me at least, what I hear in self-reflexivity, the kind of I have the capacity to although I'm, I'm engaging in the same discussion. All right. So yeah, Beth has among other things told us to refuse normativity, but I'm not buying it. I'm telling you that I want to extinguish this form of life that we may enjoy a better form of yeah. life in the reception at the Gender Institute now. Beth, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.